0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Carl Turner, Vice President of Supply Chain at Maine Pharma. I get a little bit too excited when we have a guest from the buy side on the podcast. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Carl today. As you'll hear, I fired all the questions at him that I suspect you would wanna fire at him to really build a picture of what someone like Carl, who manages a very complex supply chain, looks for when selecting CMO and CDMO partners. Just to give some context to carl's role uh, at main pharma he is involved uh, his team is involved in managing 30 cdmo relationships across the globe across different drug delivery systems uh, which is a hugely complicated uh, role to undertake and he has a, a really unique perspective because main pharma also own metrics contract services which is a very successful cdmo business so he's able to see things from both sides of the coin as such carl talks through his four c's uh, and as, as much as i try to add more c's to carl's list please look out for these almost like a framework to make sure that if you're on the vendor side that you're meeting these aspects uh at the very least when trying to attract buyers from the pharma and biotech sector. It was also really interesting just hearing what life is like on the kind of drug supply side and the drug development side when it comes to balancing uh, risk mitigation, but also achieving kind of economies of scale. Col also talks about the kind of the impact of globalisation on product supply and how COVID has impacted, uh, seeing suppliers and getting to sites and some of the technology and events that he would typically attend. It's actually quite reassuring and and interesting to hear him talk about how he uses CPHI to actually do a lot of his networking and and supplier relationships, which is uh, which is really interesting as we kind of live in a in a more digital kind of savvy. Uh, world and and also he talks about some of the techniques and things that uh, vendors do that have worked really really well in terms of getting his attention and, and putting him on the radar uh, of main pharma. Um, and finally, he talks about uh, various things about you know, you know, one stop shop CDMOs versus specialists. What happens when a, a big one stop shop buys uh, one of the CDMOs? How that impacts him being, you know, a a bigger client and amongst uh, the CDMO and how that works. uh, And on the flip side, being a small client as well, and and ultimately never letting the patient down, which I thought was a lovely uh, phrase that Carl used. Uh, I really hope, and I'm actually pretty confident that you're going to enjoy today's episode. It really is an excellent uh, conversation and it's an absolute pleasure to get insights from, from experts like Carl. As always, just one simple request from me, please give us a kind rating on the app store that you use, whatever platform that is. And if that's too much to ask, just share the podcast with a colleague. Our connection is we try and uh, get Molecule Market into more hands and ears, if you like, of people across the industry. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, Carl, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thank you, Roman.
0: Carl, Let's start off by giving our listeners a bit of an overview of who you are and what you do at Maine, and it would also be great to hear your story from, you know, college to kind of the various roles you've had to to where you are today.
1: Yes, so coming out of college uh, was chemist and biology major, and uh, was looking to find my way into the pharmaceutical sector. Uh, landed a position with Abbott Laboratories in one of their large manufacturing sites that focused on sterile injectables. Uh, So after a couple of years in quality assurance uh, in the chemistry lab, uh, was looking to move into the management sector and... uh, in a leadership role and moved into supply chain. And from there, my career transitioned through uh, various aspects of the supply chain. Great.
0: And then and did you move from from your uh, kind of biography? You obviously spent time, uh, I believe, at Hospira as well before um, before your May, you kind of moved to, to Maine Pharma.
1: That's right. Yes. Started out with Abbott Laboratories. And after about uh, 11 years, uh, 17,000 of us spun off uh, to create a standalone uh, generic injectable company, Hospira, And uh, that uh, business unit ran for about uh, another 11 years. And then we were purchased by Pfizer. And uh, I was with Pfizer for just about uh, six months. And then Maine Pharma came knocking and uh, I moved over to uh, work for Maine. And I've been here uh, nearly six years.
0: Great. And I'm guessing, I mean, you just out of curiosity, was... Was Pfizer not the right fit for you, or was it just m- the main opportunity was was too good to turn down?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. You know, Pfizer's a wonderful company and 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 a broad company with a lot of aspects. and And they had uh, picked up the injectable business, which is where most, most of my career had been focused on, but I was looking for an opportunity to go with a uh, up and coming smaller entity uh, that was a bit more broad and also would stretch my knowledge base. So as you look at Maine Pharma beyond the CDMO business that we have, uh, we also have a, a pretty broad spectrum of drug delivery systems. So we're not in sterile injectables. We're in really everything outside of sterile injectables. So foams, creams, and ointments, as we look at our dermatology business, uh, we're in hormonal solid oral dose. As you look at our women's health business, we're also in intervaginal uh, NuvaRing uh, as as a product offering. Um, and then and then we've got a lot of other uh, applications like transdermal patches. So it, it really stretched my horizon in terms of uh, that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing.
0: Mm, th- yeah, thanks for that. And, and main's an interest in animal, and you, you touched on one of the things I was going to ask about, which is... You know, Maine Pharma is a pharmaceutical business with its own products that it you know, takes to market. and But it also happens to have a CDMO business uh, that it owns as well, which uh, many of our listeners will know. Uh, Metrics Contract Services, which is a, a very well-respected uh, business out of out of North Carolina. Do, do you mind just talking about the relationship there and, uh, and also, the, I suppose, the unique perspective that you get where you are? Uh, and I'm going to ask you lots of questions about Working with CDMOs and and that type of thing, but presumably you do have a unique perspective in that you are not only the buyer and that is working with many CMOs and CDMOs, but you're also a business that owns a CDMO yourself. Which I think is a really uh, curious, interesting perspective that you can that you can provide.
1: Sure, and I I encountered this same type phenomena when I was with. Hospira, Abbott, and and Pfizer as well. So we had both uh, manufacturing for our own internal products at those previous three companies, and then we also provided a third-party contract manufacturing services. Uh, And so it was a unique perspective sitting on both sides of the table in that you saw clients coming in uh, looking to you to provide your expertise on the manufacturing of their products Um, So when I came to Maine, it was a similar uh, instance where I was able to put myself on both sides of that uh, table in in the expectations that your client or customer has, but also the expectations we have uh, as we outsource some of our manufacturing. As I mentioned, Maine has a lot of different drug delivery systems, so we're not experts in all those different capabilities, so we do outsource. Um, So I do get the advantage of, of sitting on both sides of that table.
0: And on that point, this is one of the reasons I was very excited to have you on, Carl, is a lot of the listeners of our podcast are on the kind of vendor side. So, you know, the CROs, packaging companies, analytical companies, CMOs, et cetera, et cetera. Take me into the boardroom of the journey of sourcing. So, you know, let's say you guys are either developing a product or you're launching a product. What does that look like in the boardroom or where do you you start searching? And I'm, I'm genuinely very curious because you know we we hear different perspectives on how that's done but i feel like given your your experience you could probably give us you could paint a very uh, real picture of, of what that looks like
1: yeah so so in my current role we're overseeing about 30 different contract manufacturing uh, relationships globally so uh, europe asia and north america is where we have um manufacturers producing in our label with with our name and our products. Um, so there's a high expectation uh, that they live up to uh, the standards that we have upon ourselves for our own manufacturing. So as, as my team and I look at who we're going to partner with, um, we first and foremost look at capability uh, because we need to have somebody that specializes in that type drug delivery system. Um, And I couple and and I'm going to use a lot of C's here, but I couple (laughs) with capability as capacity because, um, you know, many people have the capability that's their sweet spot in terms of producing that product. But do they have ample capacity such that you're not an afterthought in their manufacturing as you place your purchase order and you're within your lead time um, that you become a priority within their manufacturing space? Um, So, I, I, you know. Capability and capacity is who we're going to go and look for first uh, when we've identified a product either that we've acquired or a product that we've developed.
0: Okay. And like explain that search as well. Like give me some granulars. Do you go, do you Google? Do you go to events? Do you, you know, utilize your own network? I'm just, yeah, really interested to know kind of uh, how that, how that literally works or is it, you know, because a lot of companies that have been on the podcast, you know, will Try and pitch to people exactly like you. So it's always good to find out how a, a buyer like yourself in the kind of the digital world that we live, how you actually start that search and, and what that looks
1: like. Yeah, the the most fruitful spot that I have found to really engage and get to know suppliers and vendors has been CPHI, and mm-hmm. uh, the the European CPHI is is probably the largest in in terms of uh, number of suppliers that are in. One space, and and you not only see the contract manufacturers, you see the API and Excipients suppliers and packaging suppliers. So you really have everyone under multiple roofs. It's not under one roof. It's typically multiple roofs in a large convention center mm-hmm. um, in, in Europe, and it gives you an opportunity to go uh, vendor to vendor, supplier to supplier, understanding their capability, their capacity. Um, and you really start to develop that early relationship, um, and then as opportunities come up or requests for proposals, um, you then tend to to utilize those uh, contacts that you've made through events such as CPHI.
0: And how I actually interviewed someone from CPHI yesterday on the podcast, so that will be uh, music to their ears, no doubt. Uh, and you know, a lot of the conversation I I had it was a event specific podcasts, the future of events in the trade sector and, you know, will people go to events and will people travel and all that type of thing. And how did that, how did you, how were you impacted from a COVID perspective when it came to obviously not being able to go to CPHI worldwide, for example, because, because all the events were canceled, how did you guys pivot and kind of manage that kind of challenge of not being able to physically see uh, some of your partners?
1: Yeah, so it uh, you know it, it definitely limited our ability to meet new partners because we just were not in the in the space to go meet someone new. Uh, but those that we did have a relationship with or had reached out to us, uh, you know, through contacts or through LinkedIn or through emails. Um, you know, we, we had to set up Zoom calls or Teams calls to where we met those individuals. And, and the thing that was interesting was watching each company very rapidly uh, go to virtual meetings and virtual uh, tours of their facilities. So we saw a, a, a metamorphosis really overnight, and this happened back in 2020, where companies had very well laid out uh, and very well executed uh, videographer uh, walking through their facility, all the way from the entrance, coming through security, uh, going into the gowning rooms, and then going into the manufacturing spaces uh, where they could could take cameras in. Um, and it really gave you a sense as if you were there walking through the space. So I, you know, I really applaud those companies that took the time and took the energy to put that in place because it's really helpful when you can lay your eyes on the manufacturing space and get a sense of is everything I'm seeing. Uh, related to what they committed, uh, you would find if you did visit their facility.
0: Uh, it's fascinating, and uh, it's uh, it's music to my ears actually, because that was well <laughs> my day job of the business I run. One of the businesses I run, it was a big push to to say to clients, "Hey, we need virtual tours of the facility for that exact reason. You've got to give people a sense of the facility and and that type of thing." So it's fascinating to hear the value that that you guys got as a as a buyer in the sector. And, and Carl, you mentioned 30, if I if I if I heard correctly around, you have 30 CMOs that you guys manage. Do you do you tend to use the same kind of partners again and again? Or do you are you always at, at, in looking for new ones and out in the market? Just curious, because it seems like a lot of CMOs to be working with. And I imagine you get to see the good, bad, and the ugly <laughs> across the spectrum.
1: Yeah, you know, I, again, it's 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 primarily driven by number of drug delivery systems uh, and capability. So that's that's why we have so many different uh, CMOS. Uh, we do have a little bit of overlap with some CMOS that have similar. Um, Process trains um, that we could consolidate, but we we also like having the redundancy. You know, one thing that COVID really brought for us was around risk management, and really, do you want to put all your eggs in one basket? And and from a historical procurement standpoint, I've seen this evolution of well, if we consolidate more into one supply base, uh, there's economies of scale. And there's cost effectiveness in doing that. However, if if you spread things out, you've got a little bit of redundancy. If something happens in one part of the world, or in this instance globally, um, you do have a, a fallback plan uh, to shift some production or some capacity to other suppliers.
0: That's fascinating, and and you almost constantly, it must be like you know, juggling, having to make sure that you're not putting all your eggs in in one basket, and you do have contingency supply in place. And and that leads me to my next question. I understand you guys have um, partners all over the world in North America, in in Europe and Asia. So on one level, I'm just curious to know, how do you find the difference in in working with CMO partners in different parts of the world? Uh, But also, uh, I suppose, supply chain vulnerability and and making sure, to your point, that there isn't too much risk being carried. I'm interested in knowing: Do you have you guys added more partners to the mix as contingency from a contingency perspective? For example, you know, having a local supplier in North Carolina or in Australia or something like that. Just curious, both from a culture perspective, how it is dealing with uh, different CMOs in different parts of the world, but also how the vulnerabilities of the supply chain have maybe shifted things and, and made you guys look at things differently.
1: Yeah, you know, from a, from a an ultimate supply chain perspective and risk management, you would love to have multiple suppliers for every instance. Uh, the complexity, as everyone knows, in the pharma instance is that validation, uh, the expense going into a technical transfer is extremely expensive uh, to try and stand up Two different partners on the same molecule, um, for instance, API. Uh, to have two API sources is uh, a, a very large expense, so it becomes very problematic. Uh, one of the things we've looked at, uh, Raman, is how do we how do we separate out the need for pure redundancy versus safety stock? And I think a lot of companies are doing the same thing, which, from a supply chain perspective, could I build safety stock to give me that buffer to weather some sort of near-term event? Uh, obviously, COVID has now uh, heading into its second year, and fortunately, companies have been resilient and continue to manufacture, continue to be able to have their employees come and produce products, which is, has, has been tremendous. Uh, but really, I think now, as we look at risk management, is how do we work through a short-term event, whether that be a, a weather event, a geopolitical event? Um, some sort of tariff or um, transportation issue how, how do you mitigate that short term period where you could come back up on the back end of that or if if it could persist longer than say six months, could you use that safety stock t- uh, to give you time to qualify an alternate source?
0: Uh, it's fascinating. It's really interesting just to kind of see the world from your perspective and kind of how you have to, uh, mitigate risk and and balance things, and you know, you know, both. You mentioned obviously risk versus the economies of scale. It's a really fascinating kind of insight into what it's like on the kind of the buyer side side of the fence. And earlier on, Colly, we were talking about um, capability and capacity as kind of, if you like, the the core. Uh, Decision making criteria when you when you potentially look at partnering with a with a CMO or CDMO partner. Beyond that, what what are the things do you look at? So let's say for example, you you, know, you have a project that you're looking to place, and you go visit a couple of different potential partners. What are the other kind of factors? For example, you know, culture, chemistry. Uh, it looks like we can only use Cs uh, for yeah, these words. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. So absolutely. So it's compliance would be uh, my next C. And, you know, it's so it's so critically important. And you know, I've I've sat through numerous inspections, whether it be the FDA or TGA or Health Canada or. Uh, EMA, it it really is is so vitally important that compliance is, is first and foremost uh, because they are an uh, an extension of our manufacturing capability and and we're putting our name on that product and um, so it's it's absolutely you know after we've identified the supplier has the capability they have the capacity. we we quickly are assessing their compliance, not only with the FDA, since the bulk of our products are being sold in the United States, but also how is their standing rest of the world from a compliance perspective?
0: Interesting. Interesting. So you've got your compliance, your capability, your capacity, and then I'm guessing it is, is the next level is that kind of, hey, can we work with these guys? What's the culture fit like? What's the chemistry? Or maybe that's not as important as companies think I'm I'm interested in. No,
1: <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're right onto the next C, which, uh, you know, and I, and I, I, bucket this as a couple of C's it's, it's, and I, I kind of put it under the umbrella of customer centricity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how, how well are they aligned to supporting us, uh, as the most important person, or in my mind, you know, we're, we're the most important product that they have in their plant. Obviously. They've got other players that they're supporting, including their own manufacturing, but are we a priority or can we be a priority with our product? Uh, And and under that umbrella of customer centricity, I list out as consistency and continuous improvement because there's an evolution uh, in terms of continuing to be competitive in our space uh, and to drive improvements to our product, uh, to to drive better yields, to drive better batch size, uh, better outcome for our patient in terms of the packaging. So everything fits under that customer centricity is, are they really focused on us as their customer and then our patients uh, as also an offshoot of their customer base?
0: That's great. Uh, and even that little framework of the, the four C's that you, you mentioned, I think is uh <laughs> It's really useful for uh, unless there's more, unless you've got a couple more hiding.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no that.
0: <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's really helpful actually, just to kind of it's interesting that you to kind of understand the framework, if you like, that you you use and and to kind of assess uh potential partners. And um I was reading an article today, uh it was pretty pretty high profile because it it made the uh BBC World News' website and it was uh, one of the the Moderna vaccine products has had some kind of uh, contamination, and uh, and you know you see that the name of the CDMO is kind of written lower down in the in the list. And uh, have you ever had to deal with that type of situation where you know you mentioned um, the CDMO partner being an extension of your team and it's your name on the product? Have you ever had to deal with that type of situation where something doesn't go right and it doesn't have to be a recall or anything like that, but you know, something goes wrong. And just curious how you how you go about dealing with those types of situations.
1: Yeah, so you know, each one of these has some level of technical complexity, which is which is why we've outsourced it. Um, and, you know, so fortunately, you, our organization has created a team. Uh, and as we run into these issues or we learn about it from our, our CMO, uh, we quickly are on the phone, and, and who we bring to that conversation is a uh, supply chain lead, so one of my team, someone from our technical transfer, so they sit in our R&D team, so someone that understands uh, ms and which is Manufacturing Science and Technology. We have someone that really is grounded in the science of the product, uh, and then a quality uh, liaison from our organization that really is going to ensure we're meeting the compliance as we progress from issue to resolution to corrective action, to release of the product. So, it, it's really that tribunal of people on the telephone, and and I would say, you know, this is this is a regular occurrence just because there's some complexity either in the manufacturing step, or probably more frequently with a raw material that's coming in from a supplier where there's been a slight deviation or a slight change that is modified the outcome of the product to some level, mm-hmm. uh, and we need to find out how do we resolve that that uh, raw material issue so that we can get back into production before we, we run out of supply. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space
0: how have things changed over the years in terms of obviously outsourcing and has, has obviously grown hugely over that time period and use of third- party kind of suppliers i'm I'm interested to know kind of how things have changed you know from what it was like say 15 20 years ago to how things are today is it more complicated today is you know are things easier today because of you know digital platforms and technologies just i'm sure it's a combination of all but uh, really kind of curious to hear your kind of perspective on on kind of uh, the difference in you know in, in life for you based on you know what what decade you're working in
1: sure well you know globalization uh has really enhanced the uh, capability to really Look outside of your geographic region, and and really open up all the all the space to who is the best provider of of that service. Uh, so I really find it, there's been this evolution to an improved outcome, uh, no matter where you sit or where your supplier sits, um, and and that's great from our confidence in others. But I also see it on the provider standpoint in that there's an awareness that they likely have customers also in your region, so they've become versed around, you know, for instance, FDA requirements and regulations, and they can speak very quickly and articulately, not only to the supply chain team, but to our quality and regulatory team around their confidence in the outcome of their product. So I, I think it's continued to progress in a favorable manner. Um, you know the complexities now that are facing us are really more on the very back end, which are transportation related. It, it's getting harder and harder to move goods, uh, but the quality and the confidence we have in our suppliers globally um, continues to strengthen.
0: And is the transportation and, and logistics element is that because of COVID restrictions, or is that is that something else?
1: It's uh, it's it's I would say two different instances. One, COVID has played an impact. There's less passenger flights today than there were previously. But through this whole globalization, which is really the second part of this, through globalization, there's more and more goods moving globally than than ever were before. Uh, So you see a lot more transportation, both air and ocean, uh, versus what we've ever seen really historically. So it's put pressure on the current system and has really increased that need for more capacity.
0: That's really interesting. It's a very interesting point that is. And uh, you, you talked before about, um, you know, almost being a, a key client or an important client to, uh, you know, a CMO partner. So I'm curious to know what happens, you know, obviously there's been a huge amount of MA activity in the outsourcing space in the last uh, five to 10 years or so. I suspect there's been a time where you have been working with a CMO and they have been bought by one of the bigger kind of global one-stop shop type uh, giant cmo entities. Uh, I won't mention any names, but I'm sure all our listeners know the types of companies that that we're talking about. Uh, assuming that has happened to you on your journey, how how do you then deal with that situation where presumably, you go from being uh, a, a big fish <laughs> in a small pond to a pretty small pe- uh, fish in a, in a much kind of in an ocean, <laughs> basically.
1: Sure, we have we've seen that across a couple of instances, both on contract packaging and contract manufacturing. You know, fortunately, we've had a relationship typically with those larger entities already, so we've we've likely had a contract with them just at another site, and now they've acquired. Uh, this this secondary site where we've also done business under the under a totally different umbrella. Um, what I have found the CMOS and CPOs that have acquired these companies in a lot of instances um, have allowed that local unit to retain that same level of relationship with with us as the buyer, um, while they're changing some of the expectations around regulatory quality. You know, some of the specific. Um, expectations to to kind of mirror the more corporate or or larger um, providers' expectations, as they look to the customer, that customer centricity seems to be more at that local level, which helps because now I'm not having to deal with someone in a totally different area. I can go direct to the plant and um, get my questions answered or ensure that my products are being manufactured in the timeline and, and at the same level of expediency that we're expecting.
0: Interesting. And and do you see a difference in the kind of customer centricity or the, the, the level of service from, say, you know, the big one-stop shop type CMO companies and then the kind of smaller, more niche partners that you work with? Um, I, I was, I'm not going to ask you if you have a preference cause I'm sure there's a advantage as a disadvantage, but on occasions I'm guessing you'll go to a specialist that might be smaller versus, uh, you know, one of the bigger, bigger types of, uh, organizations. And do you, do you see a huge difference between the two of them typically, or, or are you seeing that almost uh, level out as time goes on?
1: Yeah, we, we definitely want to have that connection right to the plant level because that's where the action's happening. So if, if we've had a larger entity come in and take over a plant or multiple plants, uh, there will be a corporate liaison that we have that's, that's based out of their corporate office that's providing um, high-level support, and it's generally around the contracting and the, the finances and, and uh, payment in terms around the agreement, but as we really get into the day-to-day, and back to your your and my conversation earlier on, you run into a technical issue. Well, that person's not going to be close enough to what's happening. We're going to want to be back in touch with the key point in the plant, and in many times it's the plant leader or the plant manager uh, that we have on the phone uh, giving us confidence that we can get past this issue. So I, I would say it's, it's kind of a tandem. You're getting the, the kind of the corporate view. Uh, with this larger multi multinational organization at the uh, agreement and financial standpoint. But we're still having that easy touch point right into the manufacturing site. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's fascinating actually just hearing you kind of talk about the local level plants and how having contact and communications with the plant level is, is kind of essential for you guys rather than it all kind of channeling through the corporate entity at the top, so to speak, or the centralized way of doing it, which I think is is fascinating. And and you, this one might be too commercially sensitive, so feel free to not answer this question, but I'm just very curious how pricing works across the board. You know, if you pitch a job out to five or six different CMOs, do you see massive differences in pricing or are they all always in the same ballpark?
1: They're generally, you know, I would say if we went out to five different suppliers, you would have three kind of right in that, that median, uh, pretty tight spot. You'll have one or two outliers. and But I, I assume those outliers are, are two different instances. One is they're really hungry for a need to fill some capacity. They've got an underutilized Piece of equipment, and they're willing to go a bit aggressive on price to, to lure you in. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side, it's someone that really doesn't have a lot of capacity. They realize that to pick up this volume is is going to put them in a in a, in a constraint. Uh, so, really, to make it a priority with them this in their plant, uh, they're going to need to price it a little bit higher to make it more advantageous for them to prioritize a a smaller molecule, for instance, over some larger volume through another customer. So, uh, you know, I guess to, to cut to it, it's really those those core groups are typically uh, within a similar price range.
0: That's super interesting, super interesting. My uh, my listeners' ears will be burning and they'll be getting great. Uh, <laughs> and I, I hopefully won't get a load of spam from everyone afterwards trying to sell you their CMO services, but they, I'm sure they all offer fantastic capabilities. And, and kind of final question relating to kind of uh, the relationship and selection of, of CMO partners and do you mind just describing a great vendor relationship that you have and what that looks like and and on the flip side when things have gone wrong and where you've had a, a bad experience with a, with a vendor and again obviously we're not asking for specific names or anything like that although that might be quite exciting and fun just for a separate podcast but um, I think just I think just hearing it from your perspective of what a great relationship looks like from your kind of vantage point would be would be great, and also the kind of things that really annoy you as, as a client.
1: Yeah, so it, it's absolutely um, feeling like this this organization is is a um, a true partner, and it really it, to, I guess to take it one step further is almost like they're an extension of your company. So imagine. Within your own company, you can go down the hall and speak to someone in quality regulatory supply plant operations and and get your question answered. You want that same level of attentiveness from your supplier. So you want to be able to pick up the phone and speak to someone or get connected pretty quickly to know the status of your product. Um, You know, from time to time, commercial will come to us with a new opportunity for us to increase market share. Uh, A competitor could go off market due to some sort of technical issue. Um, And our goal is to keep supply available for patients. So our ability to get questions answered quickly, to get resolution of complex problems answered quickly, we want to feel like that uh, we can make that connection pretty fast. It's not, well, we'll get back to you in a couple of days, it's this is a priority we understand this is a critical opportunity for you to, to capture market share or address a real-term issue so that you can maintain supply. And we're here for you, and we wanna work through this issue. It's, it's that attentiveness, it's that customer centricity, it's, it's availability.
0: That's really interesting. And then on the flip side, is it is it literally the opposite of all of that?
1: <laughs> you it <know>? it <laughs> is. It is. And I, I think the most the most frustrating instances, and and fortunately we don't have many of these, but is when you run into some sort of technical issue, or you're in need of incremental supply. Um, it's it, you know that those delays, those times of of multiple days passing, and you're really blind to what's happening. You don't know. Why they're not responding you don't know if there's a raw material issue you don't know if there's a manufacturing issue you're starved for information and you know, with without information you begin to speculate what could be going wrong and mm-hmm. at the same time from a supply chain perspective you're starting to get the pressure from your commercial team on what's going on so the you know the the, the heartbeat or the cadence of the questions begin to rapidly accelerate uh, as time progresses so it's back to the, the, the prior uh, companies we were talking about, which is someone that can help give confidence to you that they've got things under control or have a path forward to resolution that allows us to turn and give confidence to our commercial team or to our patients that product's coming.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great lesson in there. I think, you know, for any service business of… The value of over communicating to an extent to avoid questions and avoid doubt and worry on the on the behalf of the client. So I think that's a terrific piece of advice. And you know, I look at someone like yourself, Carl, who's had a very successful career in you know in, in phenomenal companies. You know, AbbVie, Pfizer, and, and obviously Main Pharma now. What what do you attribute your own personal success to? And you know where. Where does the drive come from on your from your side to to develop such a such a fantastic career? Well, wow, that's,
1: a, that's a tough one to answer. Sorry, say, sorry to um, sorry to
0: switch switch gears very quickly there and go from CMO yeah. selection to tell me why you're so brilliant, Carl. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I, I, I mean I think at the root of it and, it, and it's probably every person in the life science space is you can you can really see who you're helping on the other end, and you know that every pill, every sterile injectable, every vaccine, you know, every, every item that you create is going to someone that needs that item to sustain life or to improve their life situation. So it, it really is a rewarding place that we all work in and uh, that drive to not let your patient down, not let your customer down uh, when they need you most. And uh, so I think that's what gets me up every day and gets me excited about ensuring that uh, there's adequate supply and that it's highly compliant and it's safe.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's terrific, and it's certainly encouraging for everyone to hear someone in your position to hear the kind of connection to the patient and how important how important that is. and And if you could, you could go back and speak to the 25 year old Carl. What what advice would you give him?
1: Oh wow. Um, you know, I think, and this goes back to something you and I spoke about earlier, is really the globalization. Um, I think I, I think I would move a bit more around the world I, I had the opportunity to move across the US and in multiple regions uh, the Illinois Chicago area Los Angeles uh, which was great um, at one point in my career I had an opportunity for a role in uh, the Netherlands in Amsterdam and uh, another opportunity uh, opened up at the same time with the company I was with and I, I was slotted into that role here in North America and US and looking back, might that have given me an even broader perspective on the world that I've had to learn through uh, travel or through um, Zoom calls and and meetings, but really that global knowledge and global experience. uh, I think if I were to go back to the 25-year-old me, it would be uh, get out there, take a chance, uh, and move globally to really get that experience under my belt.
0: Well, uh, I love that being a person in my own personal life. That was a complaint I was hearing from a lot of people that were maybe 10 years ahead of me in life saying, you know, we wish, wish I'd moved here or had the chance to move there. And it's often a, a location thing, which was one of the reasons I ended up moving to the US was I, was like, I think I'll regret this if I don't do it now. So it's, that's terrific advice for anyone who's developing a career for themselves in the space and has the opportunity to move elsewhere in the world. It's a, it's a global sector that we work in and take advantage of that. And Carl, we've got another five minutes left or so. And, you know, I think some of the insights and uh, advice and learnings and lessons that you've provided today will be really invaluable for our, for our listener. I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the kind of sector generally and any trends or shifts or changes that you see going on at the minute. And, particularly from the perspective of as a buyer that's using multiple kind of vendors in the space and how COVID has impacted you guys. Is, is there any kind of big changes or shifts or, or things that are changing from your, from your side of the fence?
1: Yeah, it's, it's no doubt artificial intelligence. You know, the speed at which to make decisions, the speed at which to get information um, is, is growing rapidly. And that's in every sector of, of every business, but um, you know, we're starting to see it now. Um, one of the biggest opportunities is with uh, serialization of products. So now you, we're placing a unique identifier on every single uh, sellable unit, and and that's exciting because it gives us a license plate on that particular product, and now we can see it as it, and and we'll see it as time progresses all the way through our supply chain from from the very beginning when that that license plate's created as we're getting ready to start manufacturing. So we know where it's at in its life cycle all the way through to our distribution and all the way through as it moves all the way to patient. So um, having that visibility is gonna be great. Uh, it's gonna give us a, a better view on demand. It's gonna give us a better view on utilization. Um, it's gonna give us a, a really good view on, on the customer experience. Um, but with that data becomes Quicker decision making, right? You know, if you go back uh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, without a lot of technology, things were a bit slower. The decisions were much slower. Um, Now you fast forward to where we're at today, how quick things are. Imagine as there's more and more data available, um, it's going to make our lives a lot easier in one respect, but a lot more complex in terms of how do you sort through that massive data and massive information really to get to to the best decision.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talking about kind of AI and data and um, it's not necessarily what I thought you would, would mention, but I think it's a real insight into how uh, pharma companies are thinking about data and making quicker decisions and, and where AI and data you know, plays a role in, in all of that as well, which I think uh, was really interested in. And specific to COVID and the impact that you've had on the supply chain, do you are there any kind of things that have accelerated in terms of trends or anything that you, you don't expect to go back to the way they were or anything like that? And it might be just you know virtual working and you know Zoom calls and stuff like that. But has there been any real impact from COVID that you think that, you know that might be here to stay rather than actually going back to the way things were?
1: Yeah, so I I do think connectivity has improved, Um, you know, really the ability to get people together quickly and make decisions versus, you know, having to get on a plane and and, and go to Asia or or to Europe. Um, While it's great and there is that connectivity, um, we can quickly get decisions made without spending all that time on the plane. You know, we can get folks together uh, from multiple disciplines all on the same Zoom call much quicker than we could uh, trying to assemble people in one. Particular conference room and I, I, I think all of us are becoming more confident in our ability to execute virtually and uh, it was exciting to see it in, in, and again it's back to that speed business is moving at a faster and faster clip uh, because decision making can can happen so uh, so much faster.
0: No, that's great it's great and I think that's a great place to end today's uh, interview and Carl it's, it's been a, a real pleasure to have you on, on Molecule to Market thanks for answering all my thousands of questions (laughs) so candidly. Um, I I love uh, certainly the learning that you provided on the kind of the four Cs model that I was kind of making some notes about, which I think is really interesting for any vendors in the sector. And it's funny because one other C that you've mentioned is a word several times is confidence, which is almost like the underlying fifth C of your model, which is, you know, having that, customer centricity compliance and capability and capacity ultimately delivers confidence to you as a buyer that this is going to be a partner that's going to look after my, my products so i think it's been a real uh insightful conversation and thank you so much for for making the time in your uh, busy schedule
1: great thank you for including me Hi
0: again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, MoleculeToMarketPod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week.
1: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.